I am not in the mood. <laughs> okay, okay. I think I know what we're both calling this one. It's been a long day. That's true, work was tough today. Oh, so tough. I mean, all the back and forth between clients, the short lunch break. You even said no to the cupcakes in the break room. You did good today, kid. Really, we're doing this again? You made a commitment for the new year. Don't derail it now. New year, new you. You're right, you're right. I can't fall off the horse this early. Oh, don't be so dramatic. It's just one time. It's not falling off the horse. It's more of riding side saddle. What? You know, you'll end up less sore this way. That is true. Really, you're, you're going to take that metaphor? Oh, come on, where did you get that? I put some in her purse when you weren't looking. <laughs> Those do look good. Oh, they are. You need to treat yourself. That's not treating yourself, that's cheating yourself. Yeah, that's the point. It's just a cheat day. Even The Rock has cheat days. Do you smell what I'm cooking? Side saddle, huh? Get up. Hey, what's going on, RCC? It's so good to see all of you. I love coming down here to hang out with you, and uh, thanks for having me back. Today, we're kicking off a brand new conversation, and it is centered around one conversation that Jesus has with a couple of people who you might have heard of. Um, their name is, is Mary and Martha. Now, you might know this, but you might not. So just in case you don't know, the Bible is divided up into two giant sections. The first section is way bigger. It's the Hebrew section of the Bible. It's called the Old Testament. The next part is the New Testament. It's a lot smaller, and it begins with these four documents, or we call them books of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. These four people wrote about the life and times of Jesus. And so the New Testament begins with Jesus and then goes for a few decades after that. And so all the things they wrote about are incredibly important, and I would argue that Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, those four guys who wrote about the life of Jesus kind of chose the stories that they felt were the most important. Now, some of them make complete sense. Like when you read about, you know, Jesus turning water into wine or feeding 5,000 people or healing lepers. I mean, that stuff's pretty dramatic. I mean, you would write about that too. But, but sometimes we come across stories that we're not really positive why they put it in there, but we know they put it in there for a reason. Today's story is one of those. It's not that dramatic, but there is something incredibly important. In fact, two things incredibly important. This is a story about Jesus and these two sisters, Mary and Martha. They have a brother named Lazarus. He becomes incredibly popular later on. They, uh, he dies, actually. Jesus is away. They're very close friends. They send word to Jesus. He says, okay, that stinks, and he doesn't do anything. He stays where he is for a few days, travels back, basically lets Lazarus die because he knows he's going to bring him back to life. It's incredibly dramatic. Of course, you could read about that in these gospel accounts because they wrote about it. But Mary and Martha are also very good friends with Jesus. 
And so Jesus is at their house, and he is hanging out. And Luke, Luke was a physician turned uh, uh, kind of, I guess, journalist. He investigated everything about Jesus's life and wrote an account, an orderly account about his life and exactly what happened. And he thought this story was worth including. So here's how Luke writes about this story where Jesus is hanging out in the house of Mary and Martha. It starts like this. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. They were very good friends. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. So let me set the scene for you really quick. Jesus is hanging out in the house. He's kind of chilling in the lazy boy. He's not doing anything. Mary is equally doing nothing. She's just hanging out, sitting at the feet of Jesus on the floor as he regales her, I guess, of stories of dramatic things he's done. I don't know what he's doing, but he's talking and she's listening. But of course, Martha, Martha doesn't appreciate her listening. Martha is frustrated because Martha is working hard. Martha is preparing a meal. She's doing what you would do if an important person was in your home. Now, I don't know if you've ever had, you know, an important person in your home or not, but if you have, I suspect you worked hard to make sure their experience was great. And you're not even a Jewish person 2,000 years ago. I mean, 2,000 years ago, there was commands for the Jewish people about hospitality. It was a big deal. So Martha preparing a meal for Jesus, being hospitable for Jesus, it wasn't just something she was doing to be kind. I mean, I think she was being kind, but it was required of her. So this is a big deal. I mean, hospitality was a big deal 2,000 years ago in the Jewish community, not to mention Jesus is in the home. And so she is being extra prepared, extra hospitable, which makes her extra frustrated with what she's seeing in her sister, Mary. So as you can imagine, this turns into something. She came to him, Martha. She comes to Jesus and she says, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me, dad. Like, tell her to help me. Like, don't you even care? You're just telling stories and she's not even doing anything. And look at all I'm doing. Can't you tell her to help me? So, of course, Jesus isn't going to let that go unnoticed, you know? Jesus looks at her and he says, Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you do you, boo, and, and let's let Mary follow her heart too. No, I'm just kidding. Jesus, Jesus didn't say that. Luke did not write that. That is not what Jesus said. But, but just for a second, just, just for a second. If Jesus were here right now, and he were some version of a self-help author, isn't that what you would expect for him to say? Like, wouldn't you expect him to say something kind of like that? Because, you know, our culture is all about this you-do-you stuff, isn't it? I mean, we hear this all the time. Now, of course, we hear it by all sorts of different names. There are so many different ways that people write about it, so many different ways that people talk about it. Maybe you have said one of these, or maybe someone has said it to you, or you've heard it from someone else. Maybe it sounded like this, like, you do you, or you be you, be true to yourself, follow your heart. You should follow your heart, because that's never led to any problems. Follow your heart, or, or find yourself. I mean, some of these sound a little ridiculous, but some of them sound kind of legitimate. So some of them even sound kind of helpful. 
And the reason is that because we're living in a time where finding happiness through self-discovery is really our highest priority. Finding happiness through self-discovery has been kind of portrayed as one of the most important or maybe the most important thing that you can do. Now, if, if you're not a Christian, just for a second, if you're not a Jesus follower, first, I'm so grateful that you're joining us, listening to this today. Um, and, and I don't know why you're here. Maybe you're curious about faith, or maybe, you know, you're getting a free lunch or something, or they promised you'd meet somebody cute. I mean, I don't know. I don't know why you're here. But I'm so glad you're here, because I think what we're going to talk about might give you something to, to think about. Um, I, I love the fact that Christianity sometimes is a mirror that reflects what we need to maybe adjust in our life. Oftentimes, the teachings of Jesus and Paul and these other guys are more like windows, and they allow us to look through to see an alternative to what the world is showing us. And, and what you're going to see today is that. It's an alternative to what the world around us is saying. So if you're not a Christian, I think today could be incredibly helpful or at least give you some insight on what we believe is true as Jesus followers. But just for the rest of us, if you're a church person, you're a Jesus follower, you're a Christian, what we're gonna see today isn't just interesting. It is unbelievably important that we grasp because our culture around us is going to try to move us away from this. But your heavenly father is trying to move you towards something, an alternative to what we see in the world around us. And what we see in the world around us actually has a name. The name is expressive individualism, expressive individualism. That's exactly what's going on with these guys. Now, before we get back to Mary and Martha, we're going to get back to that whole story. But can we talk about this idea, this individualism idea for a minute? Because I think it has some incredible things for us to consider if we're gonna look at an alternative. Now, you're a, a way above average audience, so we're gonna do a little bit of academic work for a second. Let's define what expressive individualism is. Here's what it is. Expressive individualism, it's the be true to yourself mindset that finds self-fulfillment and self-expression as the highest goal of life. That's what individualism is. It's this kind of mantra, this, this you do you mantra, this be true to yourself mantra that, that, that tells you that self-fulfillment can be found through self-expression. And that self-expression and self-fulfillment really lead to happiness. They lead to the goals that you're hoping to experience in your life. That's what this is about. I bet you've heard it under a different word. Uh, I doubt you've walked around and heard people going, yeah, I'm just trying to be, you know, more expressive individual. Uh, you don't really hear that as much. If you go look at self-help books, you'll see a lot of it. But what you have heard is the substitute word for it. And it really is the buzzword, maybe of the 21st century. The word is authenticity or authentic. I mean, we constantly hear people saying, I just want to be authentic. And, and we're told that, right? Like we are told all the time that being you is the most authentic thing that you can do. And in some cases, that is true. I mean, being you is an authentic thing to do. I bet all of you, I've done this, have tried to be somebody else, and it's exhausting, right? And it isn't helpful. It doesn't bring happiness. So on the surface, it seems like being authentic is the right thing to do. It seems like being you is the most authentic thing to do that will help you the most. The more you read about this and the more that you study it, the better it actually sounds. 
I mentioned earlier, I mean, self-help books are written about this. I mean, so much is written about this. There's this one author named Robert Bella. He wrote a book called Habits of the Heart. Um, I just want to read you like a short paragraph from that book. And, and here's what I want you to think about. As we kind of uh, read this paragraph, I want you to, to listen to what he says, and I want you to kind of think internally, do I agree with this or do I find problems with this? Because I think what you're going to do, I think you're going to agree with almost everything that you hear. Here's what Robert wrote. As people, we believe, as people like us, right, we believe in the dignity, indeed the sacredness of the individual. Anything, anything that would violate our right to think for ourselves, judge for ourselves, make our own decisions, live our lives as we see fit, is not only morally wrong, it is sacrilegious. He continues, our highest and noblest aspirations, not only for ourselves, but for those we care about. This is so giving to others, right? For our society and for the world are closely linked to our individualism. Now, when you read that, when I read that, I think, I think Robert may be onto something. I mean, I, I want to be able to live my truth. I, I want to be able to seek fulfillment. I, I, I think that working against that might be working against me. I mean, I get it. And, and it even can have a religious feel to it or a religious flair to it. I mean, think about it, right? If, if the first and greatest commandment of individualism is to be yourself, then the unforgivable sin is to be dishonest of self by giving in to any external pressure or authority. I mean, this push for authentic, expressive individualism, right? It really does lead us to a place that on the surface seems like a good place to be. I mean, on the surface, it seems, it certainly seems, that the more we can discover about ourselves and live out our authentic truth, the happier we will be. And on the surface, I think that probably is true. But it, but it leads us on a journey. And, and like some journeys, they might take you to a place that ultimately isn't where you want to be. But the problem with those kinds of journeys are you don't really know that that's where it's going until you're ultimately there. You know how a lot of journeys start? And it seems innocent, right? The first kind of exit along the journey doesn't seem like a big deal. And then the next exit isn't that big of a deal either. But eventually, those not big deal exits add up to some big deals. And that's what this journey is like, the expressive individualism journey. There are seven kind of stops along the journey. I want to show you the seven stops because I think it really does show you a pathway of where this kind of thinking can lead. Here's the first stop along the journey. The highest good is individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, and self-expression. Now, again, like, that's the first stop. It doesn't seem that big of a deal. I mean, it's just kind of one, you know, kind of stop along the journey to self-expression and self-fulfillment. Not a big deal. I mean, the highest good is, you know, this individual freedom. I mean, happiness, I, I want to be happy. And it seems like self-definition and self-expression would probably lead to me being a little more happy. It's probably true, but it's a part of a journey. And the journey continues. And the next step, number two, traditions, religions, received wisdom, regulations, and social ties that restrict individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, and self-expression must be reshaped, deconstructed, 
or destroyed. Now, just for a second, that seems to be a little bit more problematic, doesn't it? We also are seeing a lot of that, aren't we? We're seeing traditions and religions and regulations, things like that, that appear to work against self-expression, be vilified. And the only answer, if you're on this individualism journey, is to get rid of them, to reshape them or to deconstruct them. Second step. Here's the third one. The world will inevitably improve as the scope of individual freedom grows. Again, makes sense on the surface, but where does it lead us? Fourth exit, the primary social ethic is tolerance. We could do a whole hour just on that, couldn't we? Maybe a whole few hours on that. The primary social ethic is tolerance of everyone's self-defined quest for individual freedom and self-expression. Now, just for a second, we don't have a lot of time for this, but just for a second. Have you seen that a lot right now? Are you seeing that a lot around your communities, around your culture, around our, our country right now? This whole idea that whatever you believe is true, I have to be tolerant of that. Now, we should be kind of those things. We should be loving, but should everything be tolerated? I, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't want to tell you yes or no, but you can clearly see how this path takes us there, can't you? Here's the next step in the journey. This is my favorite one. Humans are inherently good. That's the next step on this journey, that people begin to believe that internally, like by nature, humans are good. Now, people who are thinking this do not have children. I, I have four children. I can tell you, at no point along the journey, when they were two, I thought, these children are inherently good. <laughs> never thought that, you know? Like, think about with your kids. You never have to teach your kid to steal, do you? Like, you never, you don't teach your kid to take something. Like you put them in like a preschool or a daycare or whatever, and they see somebody else has a toy that they want. Like you don't ever have to say, now listen, son, I want you to go over there and take it from them. Like they just do that. You don't ever you don't have to tell your kid, now, hey, did you eat that cookie? Yes, I did. No, no, no. Don't admit it. Lie to me. You should lie about that. I mean, we have to teach them the other, don't we? We have to teach them to share. We have to teach them to be honest to teach them to be responsible. And the reason is because we're not just good by nature. But this individualism journey leads us as a community to begin to believe that if self-expression is going to be the highest goal. Number six, we'll go through these last ones kind of quick. Large-scale structures and institutions are suspicious at best and evil at worst. Have you seen that some before? I bet you've seen that. Here's the last one. Forms of external authority are rejected and personal authenticity is lauded. It's the final step on the journey. Now here's the question. Does that sound like anything you have seen of late? Like maybe in yourself, if you want to be reflective for a minute, don't raise your hand and definitely don't elbow anybody, but maybe you're sitting by somebody who's kind of on that journey. Maybe you're living in your home with somebody on that journey. Maybe a child or a parent. Maybe a coworker, a neighbor. Maybe a political party or both political parties. I mean, come on, right? This, this push to self-expression and individualism, it always leads us down a path. And the path always lands here. 
Now, again, if you're not a Jesus follower, you may be thinking, yeah, what's the big deal, you know? And I get it. I totally understand why you would think that. But, 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 but if, you're, if you're a Christian, what we're about to talk through is so incredibly important for you. Again, if you're not a Jesus person, the rest of this is, I hope, interesting, but it's not applicable to you yet. But if you are a follower, this is really important because this path leads us to some places that we don't need to go. And the most dangerous word in the path is the word authority. Authority. Now, we don't like authority. I mean, Jesus person or not, like none of us really love authority. Like we don't grow up loving principles and loving anyone who tells us what to do because we want to tell ourselves what to do. We, we don't want any external authority. That is actually the human condition. Not that we're all naturally good, but that we all naturally don't want authority. The only authority that we want is our own internal authority. I mean, this is how everything broke in the beginning. God made man, gave man one rule. And guess what we did? We thought, oh, cool, there's one thing I cannot follow because who's the boss of me? Not you. I mean, it took just a few days for us to rebel because of our anti-authority position. That's how we have always been. Now, back to the story, Mary and Martha are having an expressive individualism moment with Jesus. And Martha is frustrated. Remember where we're at in the story? Mary's sitting there, Jesus is chilling in the lazy boy. Martha's working hard and she's frustrated about it. So she comes to Jesus and asks him to do something. So back to the story, Luke says, she came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me, tell her to help me. And here's what Jesus actually said. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed, only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Now, I should say, the primary point of the story is pretty clear. I, I grew up going to church. I became a Christian when I was seven years old. I mean, I've heard this story hundreds, I mean, probably thousands of times. And every time I've heard this story taught, the primary point is the point. And the primary point is important. I mean, the primary point is how easy it is for us to be distracted by things of this world instead of sitting at the feet and focusing on Jesus. And I think that's an incredibly important point. And we should probably not walk away with that as something that we think about. But it's not the only point. It's not the only point. See, when you, when you see Mary sitting there and you see Martha working really hard, Jesus doesn't seem to think you do you is okay. Jesus doesn't seem to think that you can just choose and follow your heart. At least according to Jesus, at least according to Jesus, you doing you isn't always what we should do. When Jesus looked at Martha, he didn't say what Mary is doing is okay too. He said what she's doing is better than what you're doing. That you following your heart isn't what's in your best interest. That there is good and there's not good. That there, there, there are good things to do and not good things to do. What's interesting about this, if you're really thinking about it, what's interesting about it is who made Jesus in charge? I mean, think about that. That's the question I think we have to answer about this point, you know? Like, like who made Jesus the boss of Mary and Martha? Or to use Martha's word, who, who made Jesus the Lord? Of Mary and Martha. 
Did you see that? When, when, when she came to Jesus, she didn't walk up to him and go, hey, buddy, you know, hey, friend, even though they were close friends. She walked up and she came to him and she asked, Lord, Lord. That word Lord is really important. The word Lord doesn't just mean boss. The word Lord means boss of everything, not just some things. The word Lord is an authority over all things, including you, all aspects of your life, your home life, your morality, your work life, your parenting life. Every version of you, having a Lord covers all of it. And it's easy, isn't it? Especially in the Bible. It's so easy. It's so easy to see Jesus as a person with authority. But it's not quite as easy to see him as our authority. And the reason is because we would just prefer to like Jesus. And and don't get me wrong, he's crazy likable. He's so loving. He's so full of mercy and grace. I mean, what's not to like about this guy? But, but, But Jesus didn't come to the earth to win a popularity contest. Like, like Jesus wasn't working to be voted, you know, most likable at Nazareth High School. Like, that's not why he came. Jesus came to earth to live and die for you and for me. Not so that we would like him, but so that we would follow him. And that's the problem. See, liking Jesus makes him our life coach. But following Jesus, that actually makes him our Lord. Liking Jesus makes him like a life coach, a therapist, a good example. But Jesus didn't come for that. And I can tell you, he refuses to be that, even though that's really what we want him to be, right? I mean, can we just have an honest moment? I mean, we are in church. Let's just have an honest moment for a minute. What we really want from Jesus is just enough Jesus when we need him. That's what we really want. I mean, when things are going bad, when there's a tragedy, we want all of Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. We're on our knees. Come, Lord Jesus, you know. We're at the hospital, we're sick, we're at the doctor, there's a diagnosis. You know, she says, I'm leaving. He says, we're breaking up. You you do really poorly on the the, the test. I mean, those are hard moments and we're begging Jesus to intervene. But but then there's also moments where we're like, hey, I I don't really want you around because you may cramp my style. You know, like, I want you with me when I'm sick. I don't really want you with me when I go to Vegas. You know, Jesus, I'm gonna be going on a trip It's a place called Vegas. You've never been there. And and you probably wouldn't like it. They call it Sin City. It's really not for you. So I want you to stay here while I go there. Actually, Jesus, I want you to ride with me to the airport because, you know, please help me have a safe trip. So go to the airport with me, but then stay at the airport. Okay, stay at the airport. You're going to like the airport. There's a Chick-fil-A there, Christian chicken. You're going to love it. Stay at the airport. I'm going to go to this place. I'm going to probably do some things that uh, you don't want to know about. I'm going to come home and have a good feeling that when I get back, I'm going to need to be cleaned up. So I want you to wait for me. That's how we want to treat Jesus. We want him to do our bidding. We want him to give us what we want when we want it, like a life coach would. He refuses to do that, though. He refuses to be a therapist. He doesn't want to just be a friend. He, He wants you to be a follower, because he wants to be your Lord. And the problem, I guess, is that we've been led to believe that following Jesus means surrendering our true selves, but the opposite is actually true. See, here's the issue we have. We, we resist authority because we believe that autonomy is the path to authenticity. 
But that isn't true. Autonomy is not the path to authenticity. Because as a follower of Jesus, here's why, as a follower of Jesus, autonomy is at odds with God's authority over you. Living with autonomy puts you and God at odds. And you can't live that way as a follower of Jesus. I mean, I mean, if you really want to get to know you, and I think you should, and if you want to learn more about you, I, I think you should. But, but let me ask you a question. Who knows you? Who knows you better than the one who made you, who knows you, who unconditionally loves you, who saved you, and now dwells inside of you? Who knows you better than your heavenly Father? You see, when, when Jesus is our Lord, knowing you, it really begins by following him. When Jesus is your Lord, getting to know you begins by giving him authority over you. And it's an incredibly authentic thing to do. The, the most authentic thing you can do is to give Jesus authority over you. I, I don't know if you were thinking about it this way, but if you're a Christian, this is actually the good news of the gospel. That's what gospel means. Gospel means good news. But, but, but the good news can't exist if there isn't some bad news. The, the good news can't exist if there isn't a hard truth on the other side. See, the, the good news from God is simply this, that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. That's bad news. That's hard news, that you have sinned against God. You haven't sinned against yourself you haven't sinned against your own personal self-expression. You have rebelled. That's what sin means. It means working against what God is working for. You have sinned, rebelled against the authority of this world, including you, because you're a part of this world. You've sinned against God. But because God loves you, this is so important, because God loves you so incredibly much, he was not willing, he was not willing to allow your rebellion, your sin, to separate you from him. So you know what he did? He sent his son, Jesus, to this earth 2,000 years ago to live not as a good example for you, but to live as a perfect sacrifice, to die in your place so that you wouldn't have to pay the price for your rebellion. That's the good news of the gospel. But it comes with some bad news. You see, salvation is free. It doesn't cost you anything. But following Jesus, that's going to cost you something. But it's going to give you everything. Everything you want, like hope, like acceptance, like forgiveness, unconditional love. Those are all the things that your heavenly Father is dying to give to you. But he can't. You don't allow him to be an authority over you. That's why expressive individualism is so anti-Christian. It's anti-Jesus. Because it doesn't really lead to self-fulfillment. Because self-discovery never leads to that. Only Jesus does. You see, the world around you is constantly going to tell you to look inward. But the gospel... The gospel says to look upward. 
And the reason that Jesus wants to be your Lord isn't because he wants to boss you around. It's because he just wants you to experience your best life possible. He wants to provide boundaries for you that lead to fulfillment, that lead to your best life. Now, I, I should just tell you before we finish, this is not easy to do. I mean, if you've been paying any attention, you've probably already thought, oh, yeah, this is not going to be easy. And that's, that's the problem. Like, we don't want an authority because if we have an authority, if we have a Lord, we might have to do some things we don't want to do. Jesus may suggest some things that we don't want to hear. He may say things like, forgive them. He, he may say things like, move out. And I know, I know you're thinking, you're, you're like, move out. That's, why would I do that? I mean, it's, it's, it's financially better to live together. I mean, you would never, you know, buy a car without test driving it first. I, I know, I know all those reasons. Jesus doesn't care about those reasons. It, it made me move back in. And maybe you left because you weren't happy. And Jesus says, I'm really sorry that you're not happy. I didn't die to make you happy. Maybe you need to move back in. I, I, don't, I don't know what it means for you. But I would be remiss if I didn't ask you to think about it. And I think I would be remiss if I didn't ask you to really pray about it. Are you treating Jesus as a life coach or are you asking him to be your Lord? They're very different. One of them leads to a path of individualism that never really leads to happiness. The other, the other leads to having to do some things you might not understand. But by doing it, you're putting your trust in the one who knows you better than anyone and only wants what's best for you. Can we pray together? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for loving us the way you do. Thank you for sending your son so that we could have a right standing with you. Not through our behavior, because we are terrible behaviors. We get it wrong all the time. But God, we don't have to get it right. We just have to believe. Because you have forgiven us through our faith and the death of your son, so thank you that we have the opportunity to have that right standing with you and that we can seek Jesus as our Lord, not just as a friend or as an example or as a coach because he didn't come to be that and he just won't be that for us. So God, I know that for, for those of us that are Jesus followers, we claim to be that. This means something for us. There's a cost to this. I pray that you will not allow us just to ignore that thing in our heart that's pressing on us to figure out what it means. Allow us to engage with that so that we can decide how to best follow you. We love you. Jesus, we pray all of this in your name. Amen. Hey, uh, really quick before you go, just want to remind you really quick, there's this incredible thing that we're doing here at RCC. It's 21 Days of Hope. Make sure you text today. Do this today. Text the word HOPE to 850-750-5577. They told me that's Paul's personal cell phone. So make sure you do that, and uh, we'll get a, we're going to send you some great stuff leading into Easter. Hey, thanks a lot for joining us, and I uh, can't wait to join you next time. See you soon.